we have officially now made our way through the full seven-day creation account. And seen in chapter 1, in the first three verses of chapter 2, we've seen God declare His, what? His eternality, His omnipotence. He's established His place as the only one true God. Have you been reminded of that as we worked our way through this first chapter of Genesis? He has revealed His existence through this vehicle of creation. He's made Himself known. Our conclusions and our takeaways have largely centered around this idea that only God could do this work. Only God could make something out of nothing, Dave. Only God could hang the stars and establish the entire cosmos. And our conclusion is this, for the heavens truly do declare the glory of God and the sky above truly does proclaim His handiwork. There is a God and His name is Elohim. His name is Yahweh. And we will learn much, much more about Him as we continue to work our way through this Genesis study. And I hope you've been blessed, you've been encouraged, you've been challenged even through this first chapter. And we have many more to go. And so I hope you're looking with anticipation of what the Lord will continue to teach you. So now that God has made himself known, we will start to see, as we work our way through the pages of Genesis, these beautiful facets of God's character. His nature will start to unfold in, in just really neat and special ways. And we'll be able to see this incredible God who has done these incredible things, desires, get this, to be in relationship with his creation, which in and of itself should absolutely blow our minds to think about the God who has done all these things, those six days of creation, that He has hung the stars, He has spoken all things into existence and given the structure, the design to maintain and sustain that creation. It's incredible. And that God, the King of Kings, man, He desires to be in relationship with His people. That's beautiful. And we're going to begin to see this story, this redemptive plan of salvation that's going to continue to work its way through. Andy spoke to it in, in Genesis chapter number three. It's coming. We're going to see that sin and its failure and its impact. But ultimately, God is setting the stage with his character and his person and his work that he alone is God. Friends, we're going to see right here in Genesis chapter number two this morning, we're going to see an introduction of a big commandment that the Lord gives to mankind. And it ultimately is going to be the precursor to what? A very big problem that it will create called sin and how the Lord will deal with that and how he will provide a way despite man's failure to sustain that relationship with a holy and a perfect God, with that said, the title of our message this morning is this, simply God's purpose for humanity. God's purpose for humanity. You might say, didn't we already cover God's purpose for humanity in the sixth day of the creation account? If you said that, you're absolutely right, right? So Genesis chapter number one gives us kind of a, a summary the cliff note version of all the different aspects of creation. And then in chapter number two, it's going to give us a lot more detail into the, the different aspects and nuances of those specific details of, of creation. 
We're going to see God's purposes that were established in verses 26 to 31 of chapter number one be redefined in chapter number two. We were created, remember, in the image and likeness of God. And as God's image bearers, we were given a commission to do what in chapter number one, verses 26 to 31? There was three things. A little quiz this morning before we get started, right? Go back into those sermons. What were the three things that God commissioned mankind to do? The first one was what? Have dominion over the earth. The second one was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then finally, we were called to subdue the earth. God has given us as mankind sovereignty over the earth to exercise those three things. Those are his purposes for mankind. So this morning, we will continue to work our way through chapter number two as we attempt to tackle, uh, believe it or not, a larger section of scripture. We're going to complete chapter two this morning by God's grace. Uh, We are going to do that this morning. So this broad poetic language of chapter number one, again, is is simply going to be further explained to form this detailed, what we'll call narrative of chapter number two. And so I've got a big idea, as I often do, in structuring how I approach the sermon in a text. I like to boil it down to one thought that we can anchor and kind of weave our way through the text. We've got many verses, so I want to give this statement that everything will hinge upon. So the statement is this, because a holy God desires to be in relationship with his creation, we must recognize that this relationship is based on his terms and his purposes and not ours. Let me read that one more time. Because a holy God desires to be in relationship with his creation, we must recognize that this relationship between God and man is based on his terms and his purposes and not ours. There's going to be a lot that will link into that as we work our way through chapter number two. There's a lot happening in these first few verses of chapter number two. And so I'm going to give just a very broad first point. And so forgive me for my uh, vagueness here, but I, I think it works, right? So the first point we're going to look at this morning in Genesis chapter number two is this, that God created the earth for our good and for his glory. God created the earth for our good and for his glory. Glory. Let's go ahead and look at our text. We're going to start reading in verse number four of Genesis chapter number two. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse number eight. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first was Pishon, 
It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stones are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam. There was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is Genesis chapter number two. First point this morning again is God created the earth for our good and for his Glory. So by way of review, we have a summary or this transitional statement in verse number four. Let's read it one more time. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were what? Created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The heavens and the earth were created. They were barad. Remember, Andy taught us Uh, so eloquently as he worked through those creation accounts. And then we have the Lord God, what he made or he assawed, the earth and the heavens. So we have this creation and this making, this bara and assaw, these two verbs ascribed to this work of creation. Our conclusion, again, could only be completed by who? God that is described in this Bible. And friends, this morning, This transitional statement that we could easily just glance over, get into the meat of the text by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Moses included this once again to remind us that it is God that does this creating. It is God that does this forming, this fashioning, this making of all things, and that he alone could do that. So Moses, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, desires those foundational thoughts to be carried, what, into chapter number two. So that should be the foundation that everything that is going to be read and taught through this morning should be viewed upon. In these opening paragraphs, we have a detailed description in a very unique way of the condition of the earth before what? Mankind. I don't know about you, but um, some of the things that were described here in chapter number two, I was like, oh yeah, that's, that was interesting. It was good reminders that uh, 
man, it hadn't rained yet, and therefore, what? Plants had not grown yet. And some of those details of chapter number two were just kind of neat reminders to refresh my understanding of this creation account upon. So, kids, you listening up? There are three things that a seed needs to grow. What are they? What's the first one? Water. What's the second one? Sun. What's the third one? Maddie. Dirt. That's right, right? Those are the three things that you need for a seed to grow. It needs to go in the dirt. It needs sun. And it needs water. And the seed will grow. Now, there may be more than those things, but my elementary understanding of that is that's what we need, right? So you can correct me if I'm wrong later, but those are the three things. So in chapter number one, we have a description of two of those three things, which are what? We have sun, and we have dirt, but we don't have a way for the water to get to the, to the ground. Okay, so let's read our text one more time. Verse number five. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. In verse number six, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So again, we're looking for a way for this water to be distributed to the ground, to water the seed so that plant could take forth life and be used for, for food, right? To sustain mankind when he is created. So this is a description of the creation account prior to mankind being created. So side note here. There's two reasons why God had not yet allowed plants to grow. Hadn't caused it to rain. And secondly, what was the other reason? There was no man to do what? To work the ground. There was no man to work the ground and God had not allowed it to yet rain. And so therefore, vegetation was minimal. So I've got a little sidebar here for you guys. Okay, I don't want to um, go against my only, my only promise to make sure that we don't exercise eisegesis in here. But I think there's something to be learned about how God views labor and work out of Genesis chapter number two. Is this verse before or after sin has entered into the world? It's before, right? It's before. So work and labor are a part of what God's design that he established on this earth prior to the sin account and prior to the curse. Many times when you talk about work and labor, some people want to attach it to what? Well, it's just, they just had to work. Why? Because of the curse and sin. Well, no. Work and labor and working this ground and subduing it and having dominion over it and being good stewards of this creation that would require labor and work, it was always a part of God's design. So my simple statement, my side note statement here is that work is good. Work is good. So young people, listen up. When your mom and your dad ask you to go clean up your room and they tell you to go take out the trash, when you have an opportunity to mow that yard for the first time, that is a, a good thing. That doesn't always feel good, does it, kids? 
Do you always want to go out there and do work and do chores and take that smelly trash out and clean up those clothes that have been under the bed for who knows how long and you just found them there and they're kind of stinky and smelly? Do you always want to do the chores of cleaning the bathroom and the toilet? No, it's not always that fun. But guess what? God is teaching you something about his creation, about his design, that he has created us to do what? To work and to labor and to be good stewards of his creation. And so God has created us to work. God has created this idea of labor. And, and, and as God has ordained it as a purpose for mankind, we should pursue work with the highest sense of calling that we possibly can. It is, it is God ordained. It is given to us as part of our purpose on this earth to work and to labor. And so friends, no matter what type of work that God end up calling you to do, or adults here, no matter what work you may be in today, we work as to the Lord and not unto men. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So work is good. Work is good. We should embrace work. The mention of labor here and later in verse number 15 in the middle of our text all come again prior to the sin account. So then work should not be understood as connected with the curse to come. And therefore, we should openly embrace again our God-given design and our role in work. So here it is. This first occupation established on the earth is what? What's the first occupation or job? What was Adam? He was, a, he was a farmer, right? Adam was a farmer. Adam and, and Eve's work of stewarding this creation, of having dominion over it, of subduing it. It was agricultural in, in nature. Adam was a farmer, right? That's important work to be able to steward this earth and provide food for our sustenance and growth. Verse number seven. Or excuse me, verse number five. Let's read it one more time. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. God had not sent rain, and he didn't have anyone to work the ground. So verse number six, it goes on. It says what? And a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. So this is interesting, right? There's some type of subterranean water source that was described as misting above ground that was giving the water or giving the land some type of, of moisture. But apparently this, this mist wasn't strong enough or adequate enough to actually do what? Sustain plant growth. And so God had not caused it to rain. Therefore, we don't have vegetation at this point just yet. So we look down into what? Verse number seven of chapter two. He says, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So verse number seven in chapter two gives us some greater insight into what exactly the process looked like back in chapter number one, verse number six, where it described us simply as what? Being created in the image and likeness of God. In chapter 2, we get a little bit more detail 
It was from the dust of the ground that he formed or shaped, literally squeezed into existence is what it says. And he then did what? He breathed into this man's nostrils, Adam's nostrils, the breath of life. There's a distinction, again, between all other created beings and the creation of mankind in the image and likeness of God. No other creation is described as being breathed upon by God and giving the breath of life. Do they have life? Absolutely. Do they have lungs to breathe in oxygen and sustain life and to grow and to be fruitful and multiply that he also gave the commission to the creatures of the earth to do? Absolutely. But there's something distinct and unique about mankind that we saw in chapter number one, and we certainly see here it in a unique nuance in chapter number two, that we've been breathed on by God and given the breath of life as his image bears. The doctrine of the Imago Dei, again, established right here in chapter number two, that God's purposes should be fulfilled in his image bears. So we see first that mankind was formed. Again, I said literally squeezed into shape is what that Hebrew word uh, speaks to. Secondly, our origin is but what? Dust. And then thirdly, life was given to our newly formed frame only by God himself as he breathed on us. So we have what God formed us. We are but dust and our life as we know it is only given by the breath of God. Okay, so I want to just stop and hit a pause. Or a, I just did a timeout on a pause button. I'm going to call a timeout and hit the pause button, right? Those three aspects of our nature, of our being, that we were formed by God, we are but dust, and he breathed into us a breath and life. How should that change how we view ourselves? Do those three aspects not put into perspective who we are as mankind and who God is as what? Creator? We are not God. We are His creation. He will always be the only what? Creator. And in our day where mankind thinks pretty highly of himself and all of our accomplishments, going to the moon, creating all these cures for incredible diseases, um, the things that we've built and that we've established with the work of our hands, that we think we're something great, pat ourselves on the back, it doesn't change the reality at the end of the day of who we really are. We're dust. And I only exist and my life is only sustained by a sovereign God as he breathed into me the breath of life. So am I something special? By God's grace, I am. Because I am his image bearer created in his likeness and image. But apart from him, I am nothing. Apart from him, I am just my origin, dust. Be thankful that God is creator. Be thankful for his watch care and his concern and his involvement into the details of your life that despite us being dust, that he created us in his image and likeness. And therefore, he's given us purposes on this earth to live out and bring him glory, the one who created us. So what are our takeaways in light of those three aspects of mankind's origin? Again, he is creator. 
We are simply the creation. We should come to the reality how finite our minds and our bodies really are and how infinite a God that we serve really is. In a day and age, again, where mankind is looking to establish our sovereignty over everything, including life and death, it is important for us to allow the Holy Spirit to recalibrate our proud, sinful, deceitful hearts back to this reality that I am but dust and that God is the creator of all things. My arrogant, proud, overly confident heart needs to hear that reality early and often. You ever struggle with that? Trying to take sovereignty over your own life and over your own circumstances that we can, like some puppet worker, try to just mastermind our whole life to the outcome that we desire and that we want? God is the creator of mankind. We are but just dust. It's important for us to note in verse number nine, let's look there with me. And out of the ground, the Lord God made and sprung up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. I love this verse. God places mankind right in the middle of where? The Garden of Eden. Most scholars believe that uh, the seventh day of God resting, that it would have been him right there in the Garden of Eden, that the Garden of Eden was essentially a a dwelling place of of God. It was a precursor of of a tabernacle type of dwelling place for the Lord. Literally, the Garden of Eden was a divine sanctuary. Only the holy could reside in the garden. Again, we'll see this in chapters coming. But once mankind sins, what happens to them? They're cast out of the garden of Eden, right? This is a holy place. This is a dwelling place of of God here on his creation. And so much so that he made sure to guard the entrance of the garden with what? Cherubim. To ensure that mankind could not get back into the garden. It was for the purpose of keeping this place holy. So again, there's maybe a little speculation in that understanding. I tend to agree with the thought process as we see Scripture unfold in in the chapters that will come. But right here, we have mankind in the presence of a holy God. Mankind and God in intimate fellowship, face-to-face, unbridled. Can you imagine? That's incredible. Not only does God place mankind right there with himself because he desires, remember, to be in relationship with them in that way, not only does he do that, but now he allows for every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food to come up from the ground. And I'm just like, you know what? God is such a good God here. I mean, just think, God is even concerned about our pleasure. Not only did he create us out of dust in his image and likeness and breathe into us the breath of life, but he allowed every tree 
that is pleasant to the sight and good for food to just be readily available. I mean, can you believe it? Have you seen some of these beautiful fruits? Have you seen these beautiful trees? Have you seen this beautiful vegetation in, in different areas of the country? It's unbelievable. And he made that for who? For us. And it's pleasant to our sight. And it's good for food. Guys, this is the level of care and grace and love and concern God has for his creation. I don't want to make more of that than we need to be, but can we just stop and say, thank you, Lord, that, that he loves and cares for his children in that special, unique way. going to close out this first point, this first section by just looking at verses 10 through 14. Verses 10 through 14 are just giving us really a high level understanding of the location of the Garden of Eden by providing some geographical landmarkers. And, and uh, could you throw that picture up for us? I just uh, put this picture up. I don't know if you can see it that well with the lights up. It's, it's really not too significant, but um, the Garden of Eden is described as being at the intersection of these, these four rivers, right? Two of the rivers we know and have historical precedence. We have the Euphrates on the south side. We have the Tigris on the north side. And so more than likely, this just kind of gives us, I would say we would have the land of Canaan, Israel would be over on this side here. More than likely, it would have been on the north side, the far north side or the far south side of these two rivers, assuming that um, the Pishon and the Gihon River would also be coming in some type of connection here. This is obviously speculation, but I just wanted to throw this up here to kind of show you some geography here of where potentially the Garden of Eden would have, would have been, right? So, um, again, don't, again, don't want to make more of that than we need to be, but uh, going into our second point here, God used, or excuse me, God created morality for our good and for his glory. So we have this creation account. We have mankind again being breathed into by the breath of life. All of, um, uh, of the vegetation and the plants and the trees are for just our pleasure of sight and, and are good for food. And um, we, again, we have the location of the Garden of Eden here between these four rivers and, and the land is, is fruitful and bountiful with, with gold and, and delium and onyx stones. And there's so much going on here with just this land being rich and beautiful for them to reside in. And so the second point that we're going to look at this morning is, it, they're all significant, but if I could describe a climax in our text, and the most important for, point for us to consider, it would be the second point that God created morality for our good and for His glory. We see this in verses 15 through 17. Let's read those uh, one more time just to get an understanding of what's going on here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. Why? To work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here in verse number 15, God gives Adam his first commandment, right? This is the first commandment that we see in Scripture right here. 
There's some, some terms. There's some guide rails. There's a rule now that Adam is to follow based on this direction of God. And this is, this is big. God, for the first time, limits Adam's existence on the earth, right? Think about it. Up until now, God has said what? Just partake in everything. It's all for you. It's for your good. It's, it's for your food. It's for your sight. It's for your pleasure. It's just, just partake, right? That, that's been the message up until till now. So here we have this commandment coming from God, our creator. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if you do this, what's going to happen? There's going to be consequences. And it's called death. Wow. So not only is this the first time we have a commandment, now this is the first time in this creation account that we have this word death. Up until now, everything has all been about what? Life. Bringing life into existence. Sea creatures, birds of the air, beasts of the field, creating mankind in His image and likeness. It's all been about life. And right here in this commandment, with the condition that do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's now introduced consequences that will result in something other than life. And it's called death. And this death that Adam will soon experience will result not just in a physical death, but it will result in what? A separation from fellowship with God. It's a spiritual death along with this physical death that our bodies would be brought back to dust as they were once created. So we now have this contrast between Genesis chapter number one and all that's been created to now Genesis chapter number two with this consequence of a commandment that results in death. Life and death, the contrast that mankind will go on to ponder and to debate and to consider for the ages to come. Friends, there really is no mystery in this idea of death at all. What was our big idea statement this morning? Do you remember it? Because a holy God desires to be in relationship with His creation, we must recognize that this relationship between God and man is based on whose terms? His. And it's based on His purposes and not ours. This is a foundational truth for us to understand in the pages of Genesis. Our relationship with God is always based on His terms. Do you remember the Gospel of John in our study? John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. We come to Jesus on His terms. If any man will come after me, he must do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's not me coming to Jesus with demands and conditions. That's me coming to Jesus with nothing, saying I'm in need of help. 
And we get to the Father. Our broken relationship because of sin is restored because of Jesus. We come to God on His terms. And if we're going to be in relationship with God, it's only ever going to be based on His terms. That's important for us in our day, in our age, to note. To be tolerant. That truth is relevant. That there are no absolutes. That's the day we live in. It's important for us to know that God has spoken. He has set the terms. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you see the progression here? Man is but dust. God is the creator of the entire cosmos and completely sovereign over all things. Therefore, when God establishes a conditional statement, a boundary for mankind, it should be understood as something that is for our good and for His glory. Why? Because He loves us. And He cares for us. And He desires to be in relationship with His people. So when we see a commandment, when we see a limitation on how we live and how we interact and what we partake in or how we choose to spend our time, when we see a commandment or a limitation in Scripture, let's view it as what? For our good. Because it allows us to be what? An unbridled relationship with our Creator. That's what we're created for. Not for our own purposes, not for our own desires, not for what we think will make us happy. So anytime we come across something in Scripture, or when God leads your family to some type of uh, maybe positional standard to implement, and it's based on Scripture and Scripture alone, embrace it. Don't think, wow, what am I missing out on that this world is, is taking part? No. These conditional statements, these limitations on how we relate in this, in this world are for our good, and it maximizes the glory of God through our own lives. God is the source for eternal truth. When he speaks, it is expected to be obeyed and followed. Why? Because I am but dust and he is alone God. Isaiah 14 verse 27, for the Lord of hosts has purposed and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out and who will turn it back? Those are all rhetorical questions. No one can do that. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Any uh, reference this, I believe, uh, a couple weeks ago, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, to joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here it is. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God alone is the standard for morality, for right and wrong. Some people say, well, why did God even make a conditional clause here? Why did even God put this into place? Those are speculative questions that we know that God had a plan. There was never a plan B. It was always God's plan for what? Jesus to redeem a lost individual. See, God defines morality on his terms. Even when those, those terms seem unfavorable, 
or we have trouble reconciling them, or we would disagree with them. He alone is God, and right here in the Garden of Eden, we have the Lord, what? Firmly establishing right from wrong. And this will be a simple baseline of right from wrong that has, what, eternal implications. I'll add this also onto that paragraph. Although it's not explicitly stated here, this really is the first glimpse, again, of God's clear redemptive plan starting to take motion. We have a tree. We have man but dust. Genesis 3 is coming. Right and wrong, he's going to make a way. This is beautiful. So let's talk about this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. We don't know a lot about it, to be honest with you. Um, the tree of life, even. The two trees that are, that are called out here in the garden, we, we don't have a lot of background knowledge of them. Um, many great minds, theological minds, scholars have kind of brought four prevailing purposes that you could maybe draw out from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The four purposes are this, the tree just simply provided an awareness of their nakedness. I think that fails. Number two, there's just some moral discrimination here, which ultimately attacks the character of God. Uh, the third one is there, it establishes moral responsibility. I think we're getting close there. And then number four, we have the purpose for the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, is for to provide a vehicle of moral experience, of moral experience. Okay, so let me explain that a little bit further. I gravitate particularly to this option number four of moral experience. It certainly was more than just being aware of their nakedness. It wasn't moral discrimination for a sovereign God to further define the terms of the relationship with the holy God. Moral responsibility was already established by way of the creator-creation relationship. So that leaves us with this final expression of the role, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, the, and that role would play this, moral experience. What do I mean by moral experience? Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For all have sinned, right? We have chose to rebel against God's standard of morality, right? God established it between Adam and himself and thus all mankind. Adam, in Genesis chapter number three, will choose not to obey that commandment, will take matters into his own hands and think that he knows better than God and as a result will experience the consequences. So there's a moral experience. We'll see what it will look like to experience the breaking of a perfect relationship with a perfect God simply because I chose to not recognize God as the sole creator, establisher, and maintainer of morality. On the basis of that choice, death is established here on earth. So this is the first commandment. On the heels of this heavy statement of consequence, the Lord provides once again, but in a special way for the emotional, relational, and spiritual needs of Adam. The Lord creates what? Or who? Excuse me. Woman. This brings us to our third and final point this morning. God created marriage for our good 
and for his glory. God created earth for our good, for his glory. God created morality for our good and for his glory. And then finally, God created marriage for our good and for his glory. Let's read our text one last time here. Verse number 20. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God created us to be in relationship not just with himself, but with others. And there's this first institution that God establishes on his earth that we will call marriage. It's this process of verse 24 and 25 that we call marriage. A a man and a woman that are leaving father and mother that will hold fast to each other and become one flesh. This is the institution of, of marriage. And friends, I want to, I know our time is fleeting. I want to take a few moments here just to talk about about marriage. So, so we've, we've got this institution of marriage, right, right here. And I want just, to just make some closing comments, and obviously we're, we're going to dive into this much deeper. But um, marriage is hard. Can I get an amen to that? Right? I mean, it's, it's like the hardest thing you'll ever do is, is marriage. Not because I'm married to Christina, but really because she's married to me is, is really hard, right? I want to be clear on that. But it, it's just hard, right? You've got two sinful human beings coming together with expectations and their own idea of what this is going to look like, how it's all going to shake out, right? The girl's got this idea of this knight in shining armor, and this guy's got like this just great idea of what marriage is going to be, and they rarely fit together on the same page. And so now you're just stuck a lifetime trying to reconcile those two things, right? It's great. Um, But God has a design and a purpose with his institution of marriage, right? And we look at it. Adam named all the creatures, and he found not one that was a helper fit for him. So I want to talk at a high level the role of the husband and the wife, right? The role of the husband, he was equipped and commissioned to do what? have dominion, subdue it, go work and labor in the garden. He's a provider and he's a protector. And then you have the woman that was created. Why? Because the man didn't have a helper fit for him. So we have this beautifully designed woman specifically to meet the emotional, spiritual, and relational needs of one another and to help. I love this word, helper to help each other in this complementarian view of marriage, right? 
equal but distinct as we worked our way through Ephesians chapter number 5. We have, a, we have an opportunity to help each other through the difficulties and the challenges and the circumstances of life. I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy for me to forget that my wife is a gift from God to, to help me. Don't, don't we oftentimes in marriage kind of fall into this just well-worn paths of sin and we can kind of view our spouse through the lens of um, seeing their greatest faults and sometimes thinking the worst or um, picking at, at each other. I'm trying to think of all the other nuances that I can layer into that. But I was reminded this morning as, as I was just studying for this that marriage is a gift. Your spouse is just this incredible means of grace to just get through life. And, and am I relating to my wife in that way today? Are you relating to your spouse in light of that reality of just this incredible gift? So I want to I close with us thinking and pondering of that and these other truths. But as we go into our A&I time this morning, um, I'm going to ask a question at the end here specifically for the men. And, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to read this way. How should a proper understanding of the circumstances and purposes of the creation of woman, Eve, how should that change how we as men relate to our wives today? I, I think it should. And ultimately, as we look at these three points that God created the earth for our good and his glory, God created morality for our good and his glory, and God created marriage for our good and for his glory I pray that we'll continue to be overwhelmed with the reality of God's provision, his grace, and his mercy, and that we'll embrace our God-given purposes on this world for his glory. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that you are God and that you're on your throne. I just thank you for, again, the beauty of creation. Um, man, we, we could, Father, we could not spend too much time on just considering and pondering and teaching and preaching of how incredible you are as creator. So I pray that these truths, these realities, these um, ideas of who you are, that they would not grow um, weary on our minds, but it would bolster our faith, that it would cause us to relate to you and to others inside the home, outside the home, in just a new, a fresh way. Father, we thank you for your purposes for humanity and that we can be a part of that story. Thank you for Jesus and the hope that we're going to have, that we have in him and that we're going to see mankind have in the coming chapters of Genesis. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.